Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by Fanatics. You know, Nick, my wife uh, just recently bought me a brand new Rutgers polo, man. Nice. Uh, yeah, no, it was really thoughtful of her, man. Uh, you should get some Rutgers gear. I, I want to, man. Obviously, I want to represent the, you know, the Scarlet Knights, but I just, I, I'm trying to figure out a good, a good place to go, man. Oh, well, let me give you a good place to go because you can go to fanatics.com. Now, fanatics is the world's largest collection of official fan gear from all the leagues, teams, and players you love. And if you enjoy our show, you're looking to buy a new jersey, sweatshirt, or hat, or the polo that my wife bought me, you can support us by going to podgo.co backslash fanatics, and you get 25% off your next order. Now, that's podgo.co backslash fanatics. Fanatics, officially licensed everything. everybody welcome back to another installment of the can we please talk podcast as always i'm mike leon i'm nick Severi. we've got an interesting show for you guys and gals tonight uh nick um you ever wonder what it's like to play college basketball at duke university every single day of my life <laughs> and what about what it's like to work uh for the president of the united states i can't even dream that big that yeah. would be amazing <laughs> well, tonight's guest has combined uh, both worlds, um, and that is none other than Reggie Love. Uh, he was a former Obama aide in the Obama administration from 2007 to 11. He even worked on the campaign for Senator Obama at the time. And Reggie was a two-sport athlete at Duke University, where he played football and college basketball for Coach K, won a national title in 2000 and 2001, um, was the team captain in the 04-05 season. And then he recently uh, released a book after his journey through the sports world and politics, and it's called Power Forward, My Presidential Education. I've got a copy of the book here. 
And it's a fascinating tale about, you know, not only uh, playing for Coach K, but learning from Coach K and then transitioning that into the 44th president of the United States um, and seeing and being with him every step of the way along his journey from senator to president-elect to president of the United States. So it's a super fascinating uh, story that he has and we're excited to have him on. We reached out to him and, and, and he, he gladly jumped on. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting conversation. Uh, you know, Mike, you started off with a couple of those two questions about these different <laughs> these different universes about uh, college basketball and working um, for then Senator, then um, now former President Obama. And someone who's been able to live in both worlds gets a chance to share some fascinating insights about the overlap of that. You know, one thing I'm especially interested in is just the idea of leadership, you know, being around two renowned leaders in both Coach K and, and President Obama, that experience of being alongside those two men, what just what are those experiences about being just the difference in leadership styles, actually. Um, at the same time, just some of the fun facts that we know about him, his interest in photography, which is something that I learned uh, in seeing a recent interview from him, not so recent, about five years ago at Harvard University. Right. Um, and just, just the different life experiences before joining the campaign and then after being out of the White House. Um, just an awesome figure. And we're, we're very lucky to have him tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to kind of echo that, um, there's, there's so much glimpses of different things that he touches on in the book. And some he kind of leaves open for interpretation. Some he kind of closes the loophole. Um, but he, he gives stories about, you know, everybody remembers back in 2008 that everyone thought Hillary Clinton would be the nominee and just how far behind President, I mean, Senator Obama at the time was in, in all of these democratic races. Um, it was the little engine that could, you know, a lot of people didn't think that a, a, two, a two year senator um, from the state of Illinois would eventually become the, the democratic nominee. So um, he's got a, a tale to tell of all of the stops along the campaign, um, how much hard work they put into getting that campaign, um, the way it ended up matriculating, which was to the presidency of the United States. So um, it's a fascinating tale. And then he's got some Duke stories. You know, I, I learned something new about him in the book. Uh, he went through a mini scandal at Duke that kind of changed him. And Coach K really harped on him that, hey, when you put on this Duke year jersey, you're really representing the entire university, not just yourself. And so he's got so many similar tales like that. And, and we're just excited to have him on and uh, can't wait to touch on, on all these topics with him. All right. Joining us now is a former two sport athlete at Duke University. He played college basketball under Coach K and won a national championship with the Blue Devils. He was also the captain in 04 and 05. And after a brief stint with a couple NFL teams, he decided to venture into the world of politics, where he worked as a, a campaign staffer for then Senator Barack Obama, who became the president of the United States. Um, and he joins us now. He wrote a book about his experiences called Power Forward my presidential education. That's Reggie Love. Reggie, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri. Thanks for jumping on and uh, giving us a couple minutes. No, uh, Mike and Nick, uh, thanks for, for having me on and I appreciate the kind introduction. Uh, you know, uh, my, my, uh, my best friends uh, uh, from college are from, are from Voorhees. So it's always good to, to, to connect with folks who 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 have who who know Rutgers well? Yeah, 
You know, and it's funny that you mentioned Rutgers, obviously, Nick and I went there. Um, and I wanted to get into a little bit of your background for people that don't know you, you know, tell us a little bit about your, your background, your childhood. And I know you grew up in North Carolina and, and how you got into sports and, and eventually at Duke. Yeah, I mean, look, um, I, I think the, the journey I took was probably a little bit uh, uh, different than a lot of my peers and friends that I grew up with, um, you know, my mom uh, worked in corporate America for a little bit. She worked at Philip Morris before she uh, started her own, her own hair salon. And my dad worked for social security. And so, you know, we, we had a very, um, you know, solid, like middle-class Southern city life. And, uh, you know, around the eighth grade, my mom um, thought that I needed a little more structure uh, to get through um, the educational system. And so uh, somehow uh, found a, a small um, independent school on the other side of town called Providence Day. And, you know, they, you know, they, they, they gave me a little bit of financial aid and um, I went there and, um, you know, ultimately kind of put me like on a different path for college prep. In terms of sports, man, I, I, I grew up playing sports my whole life. Uh, I, I probably started basketball when I was about uh, fourth or fifth grade. Uh, my, my closest friends outside of politics, most, most of them are guys I played with either, you know, rec league in elementary school or AAU basketball. Um, and I probably was like the best man at like a couple of, uh, weddings for guys that like we won like state championships with in North Carolina and we're like 13. Um, and, um, you know, and, and sports for me has really sort of been the, uh, the, the thing that has been the, the, the bridge maker, uh, you, you could, you could cross any chasm, uh, with sports. Um, you know, it never mattered where your parents the college or what your dad did or where you what what size house you grew up in you know the only thing that really mattered was like how you played the game and how you competed and so uh you know and then sometimes even though we we say that uh america is a capitalistic society and it's a a, a meritocracy uh, i i often believe that you know only in sports do you truly have uh, a merit-based approach to, you know, how you compete and the relationships that you build? When you think about sports and your, as it relates to your own personal development and eventually your own professional development, you know, um, between Duke, moving on into politics, what was the role of sports for you as uh, both growing up and just as it formed you as a, as an adult? You know, the, the embarrassing thing, and I, I really hate to admit it, is that, you know, uh, sports was really more of the, the carrot uh, that kind of kept me motivated for school uh, to perform. Um, and I probably, you know, I think that I, I didn't get as much out of college as I probably should have because, you know, in my mind, I was like, I just wanted to do well enough uh, for my parents not to be pissed and to graduate. Uh, but when you really think about, um, 
what the what the proposition is, right? You know, sports for education. Uh, I definitely should have gotten more, and and so, um, and because I wasn't a payer, you know, I didn't have a true appreciation for you know what those classes cost, and I never really got it until I got I went to grad school, and you know, you you finally you know you pay a tuition check uh, or a tuition bill, then you're kind of like, oh wait, this you know. And so for me, education, I was fortunate to, my parents like stressed it. Uh, you know, I, I was like the kid who went to like summer reading camp in the, in the summer versus like two weeks of basketball camp, right? You know, I, my parents were just very much the believers that, you know, uh, sports uh, can be taken away from you at any point in time, but no one can ever take an education away from you. And so, uh, you know, I have to credit my mom, my by my father for really not only, um, you know, articulating those things to me, but also holding me accountable to the same principles. And so, um, you know, I, I'm lucky to have had those, those principles instilled and, and to be totally honest, like, you know, I went to a school like Providence Day and I was fortunately like college ready when I got to Duke. And, um, you know, oftentimes you hear the story about kids who, you know, come from um, educational systems where they're the top of their class or uh, really high in their class, but they, they somehow haven't gotten the, the, the same skills or the same tools uh, that they need in order to, to, be, um, to, be, to be ready to succeed day one when they get to college. And so, you know, I, 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 I kind of stumbled into that a bit, but um, it definitely played a role in how I, I saw the world. And I remember the first summer uh, that I did not uh, stay for summer school you know and summer school is really a, a mechanism in college where you could take a couple classes and then that way you didn't have to have as heavy of a load during during the athletic season and uh, but it was it was really kind of frowned upon and and that summer was like probably the most important summer for me because it, it really did two things for me uh, one what you don't take into consideration is if you're in summer school every summer, you know what you never do? You never have an internship. And if you never have an internship, you never have any experience. And if you never have any experience, no one ever wants to hire you. Um, and I think that that is like uh, one of the things that I, I was glad that I did looking back. Um, you know, I, I, I went out and I, I, I interned on a campaign in the state of Indiana for a guy who was running for secretary of state. And what it really showed me was that, you know, Indiana, which was, a, you know, a little bit more of a red state than North Carolina, um, it kind of showed me that that we as people and as Americans, we all kind of want the same thing, you know, that even though we may look different or sound different or time zones may be different uh, at our core, uh, the things that, uh, that drive us and things that motivate us uh, the things that um, that give us respect and dignity they're all they're all kind of the same and 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 that was uh, you know uh, an eye-opening moment for me and um, because it, it it then kind of explained to me that you know everyone's like relatively reachable if 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 you want to reach them you know Reggie I, I, 
I want to harp on that later on because I know you mentioned that in the book uh, with your relationship with Obama and you realize that coming to light of like everyone kind of wants the same things. But for, on the sports side for a second, um, and I know you had a couple stints, w- w- you know, in, in Green Bay and Dallas and their training camps. And you mentioned that to Obama in the book. And, and he said, I can't imagine how grueling that was. When was the moment for you that you realized uh, I'm not going to make it at sports? Was it in that cowboy training camp or at least not make it to the level that you wanted to make it to? You'd obviously made it on the college level. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I would say that um, when I got to Green Bay, that was the first time that, you know, I kind of like looked across the room and basically was like, you know what? It's not clear that I'm better than anyone here. You know, not that I'm significantly worse than, but I was like, all these people are pretty freaking good, you know? Right. And, uh, and, and, and when I left, when I got cut from Green Bay, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I look back at the people that they kept, you know, and I didn't really, I didn't have a, you know, that guy, uh, that, uh, you know, how sometimes when things don't turn out your way, you're just like, man. And so I didn't have that feeling uh, then. And so I kind of felt like, yeah, this is going to be competitive. And whether or not I make it, it's probably a coin toss. I probably need a little bit of luck. You know, not only will you have to be really good, you'll have to, you know, you'll, you'll probably need a, you know, uh, someone to get injured or someone to, and, and so when I was waiting uh, after I got released to see if someone else picked me up, um, uh, Coach K, uh, his assistant at the time was Johnny Dawkins, had seen on the sort of the ticker that I'd gotten released. And so he called me the next day or three days later, kind of saying, hey, do you want to come back and play a fifth year of basketball? And, and for me, like, I didn't get, they weren't paying me in theory to play. They, they paid uh, some of my housing and, and they paid uh, for me to, to, to finish up my second degree in political science. I'm sorry, in public policy. Um, but for me, I never felt like the end all be all for me playing basketball was that I needed to make money from it. Like, and I, I played Duke basketball and I never kind of had that pressure of if I don't become a pro that this wasn't worth it for me. And and then when I got to Dallas, um, that after that season, I, Parcells called me after that season and said, "Hey, why don't you come down here and play defense? We're looking for someone that can guard Antonio Gates. You know, we think you'd be great at it." And I learned a lot. I put on a bunch of weight, and you know, when I got down there, I thought that I, you know, I thought I had a pretty good shot. Um, and they kind of said, look, we want you to, to get a few more reps. We want you to go to NFL Europe and want you to come back and do it. And I had, um, you know, I kind of came, I, I sort of did the math, you know, I had gotten like my first like check, you know, like my first like NFL check. And, you know, it was, I don't know, it was like 10,000 bucks or 8,000. It was, it was like a lot of money for whatever right. age I was at the time. Right. Um, but I had taken this uh, financial, I'd taken this, uh, accounting course uh, that cj skinder taught and he writes about this and um with uh, adam grant and uh, uh he writes about this in his book give and take and i sort of realized that um you know i was making like really great money for my age but i could 
chase this dream forever and I probably would eventually get there is what I thought in my mind. But by the time I got there, my body would like not be worth much. I'd have very little transferable skills. And at that point in time, you know, I was just coming out of school and still kind of competitive in the marketplace for sort of non-sports, for like non-athletic related jobs. And, you know, people were making, there were like classmates of mine were making 150, 175,000 bucks at, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old. They were going to do it for 40 years. And for me, the math was like pretty simple. It was like, I can make 500,000 for five years or 200,000 for 50 years. Right. So I think the difference for me was that um, I think that some people uh, play uh, the game of football because they love it. And I will say that I did learn to love the game of football, but, you know, I played the game of football because of, you know, uh, just the sort of statistical significance that football plays in the world of scholarships, right? There are 80 scholarships at a university for football. There's only like 10 for hoops. And so, you know, when uh, you want to go get a top-notch education, and you know those universities at that point in time cost 40000 bucks, And, you know, it seems a little unattainable, right? Like if you don't play sports. Your journey is fascinating because we go from here and then you mentioned um, you know, that, you know, getting into, you know, getting into politics and being a part of a, being a, part of a campaign. Um, something I always like to ask any guest on the show, you know, in these varied fields is um, as a person who's been on the inside, What's a misconception of everyone like Mike and myself, anyone on the outside that hears a story like yours? What do we, what do people totally get wrong about working on a campaign and being a part of a, being a part of a journey like that, working for Senator Obama and then uh, on, on route to the white house? I mean, well, look, I'd say, you know, Barack Obama now it's like, promised land, becoming, 30 million books sold, President of the United States. I think a lot of people, you know, believed it to be, you know, a lot more uh, sexy than what it actually is. And, and I kind of say that, you know, working on a campaign for a guy who's a, a, a first term, two-year United States junior senator from Illinois, you know, it's not, you know, he's, he's no Beatle, you know, he's no Michael Jordan. And so it, it, it is a little bit of a grind. Uh, and now I would say that um, I loved every minute of it, even the parts that were grind, because, you know, working on a campaign really kind of gave me this feeling of what it felt like to play on a team you know, now a little bit harder because, uh, you know, during during the normal season, you've got a, a game every week or even a couple games a week and you have a chance to go out and compete and to, you know, look at the tape and see how you did and to get that gratification of like getting a win. Um, you know, uh, 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 a campaign almost feels like an Olympic athlete who's like training uh, for, you know, his, his or her one event 
that they, you know, are going to have to compete on on a certain day. And, you know, it's a culmination of all that training and all that work, like all at once. Uh, and I think that that is like, I, I think that nothing creates the amount of like anxiety and adrenaline around that moment, right, where you campaign or work for two years for something to know whether or not like you did it right. Um, it's just a, it's just such a, it, 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 there's so much at stake and you know, you not only put your time and your resources in personally, you put the resource of your, your friends and your family, the resource of strangers, uh, you know, you've probably neglected like a lot of your own like personal and family responsibility because you've been on the road. Um, so there's really, it, 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 it's like nothing I've ever experienced. Um, because even with like a, a basketball season or with college, you know, you got an off season, you got downtime, you have like this time to, to recharge and regroup and to reevaluate or reload um, where in, in the, in the world of campaigns, like everything is like building on top of one another. It's like, can you raise this first million dollars? Can you get a good chief of staff? You know, you've got all these little barriers you got to hit. And even when you hit those barriers, it doesn't actually mean that you've won or will win. It just means that you haven't lost. Reggie, I wanted to ask you something about the campaign because um, you touch upon it in the book um, where uh, Uma Abedin, um, Senator Clinton's um, aide, was asking you to get Barack because uh, Senator Clinton during the, the primaries wanted to apologize to him. And there was a, you know, a little bit of a confrontation between the two of them and Barack kind of said to you later on that that's the day he knew he was going to win just because of um, how under control he was and how she wasn't. Um, first, how was that exchange for you? Just, you know, like you mentioned, you were so green and working on the campaign and then you see the two uh, primary candidates probably for the, for the Democratic nominee, you know, almost, you know, arguing with each other. But then the second part of it is, you know, was Barack right? Did that cost Senator Clinton, eventually Secretary of State Clinton, um, in 2016, was there any moments that you looked back and saw that and said, you know, maybe that kind of cost Hillary and Barack was right about that? I mean, look, um, I, I think the point that he was making in uh, 2007 when he made that comment when we were on the tarmac at DCA, I think it, it showed him that um, even though the narrative was such that, oh, she's a Clinton, she's invincible, they've got resources, they've got money, they've got a political machine, that it showed that there was like a, a, a chink, like a little chip in the armor uh, that not only did he recognize it, but she recognized it. Um, and then in terms of like 2016, you know, look, I don't think there's anything correlated between uh, 2008 and the 2016 campaign. Um, you know, I think when you, when you look at 2016, I think there are really, you know, there, there are three things that 
that were that really turned that election the way that it went. I think one of them uh, is her is related to her and this whole thing around like trust and the email and the bingot and like all the stuff, right? Like, you know, I think when we get to be a certain age, I, I believe this, or, or when we have put so much of ourselves into public service and to, into trying to like, you know, do the right thing, you know, like very similar to Joe Biden and he, and Joe Biden did this a little bit too, where, you know, you did the best you could do with the information you had at the time, but looking back on it, you know what, like you should have used the military to desegregate fucking schools. Like, and like, you were a great public servant, but like, you can't, defend the things that you got wrong like even if it didn't feel wrong at the time like the idea that you somehow can't say look you know what i screwed up and i'll never and and i will say joe biden did come up he did actually admit that it was the wrong thing but like it took hillary almost a year to apologize to say you know what i was wrong about this thing in which she really did nothing you know like she was wrong about it she shouldn't have been on a personal service but she didn't like break a law now, I'd, I'd say the other piece that happened in 2016 that, you know, we, you know, I think Democrats, especially, you know, the, the liberal elites, you know, we say, oh, well, the stock market's back and like the job numbers are great. The economy's great. You know, my 401k is doing great. But I think, you know, I think people just missed uh, this, um, this this strain on uh, the American household financially uh, as a function of the tightening of consumer credit. And, and it, you know, look, and I, I don't know, I can't say Nick and Mike what you guys do, but like uh, if you've never um, known anyone who basically had no cash and had a maxed out credit card, and basically was just trying to figure out how to get a couple bucks to then make a really hard choice between trying to like pay down a credit card bill or a cell phone bill or a heat bill or buy groceries. But you've never met someone like that. And then like, it's hard to really to, to know that like, if people go from spending almost 130% of their annual income to like 110 or 115% of their annual income, like, you say it's credit, but other some people will just say, oh, well, that was my money. Like I put my hand in my pocket and that was the money that came out that was access to capital that I had and needed and was, was a critical thing in order to, uh, to make ends meet. And, and I think when, when you don't address that issue, when you don't address the fact that even though our economy had come back, even though unemployment was higher than it had been in history and you don't address the fact that wages are flat, that credit is tightening, that um, people feel like they don't have access to the American dream because they see on Instagram and Twitter all the things that people have that they don't. Um, you know, now you could say, look, look to China, look to Africa, look to India. And you'd say that I'd rather be, you know, living at the poverty line in America than living at the poverty line in India. 
I think that's a rational thing to say, but I don't think that's what people actually say or believe or do. You know, I think people then believe that, you know, this system doesn't work for me and hasn't been working for me. And you know what, like I want to go in a different direction or I don't even believe in it enough to even participate in the process. Yeah, it's funny because we're, I mean, you're, you're speaking to an election and, and the policy thing comes to my mind. And I speak to you now as, as a graduate from Wharton. Um, from an economic standpoint, I mean, you're speaking to metrics that oftentimes we, we use to really misjudge economic health. You're back in the White House. I see, I see you're nodding your head like <laughs> putting that hat back on. I appreciate that. You're back in the White House from an economically policy from an economic policy standpoint. Um, what do the first hundred days look like? What should they look like uh, for the de- for the Democrats? Well, it will be very different if uh, Ossoff and Warnock do not win um, on January fifth. But you know, look, assuming that we don't get both seats and it's you know, the Dems are off by, uh, um, by one seat in the Senate. You know, look, I think, look, I'm not a, I don't work for the CDC. I'm not a doctor. It just seems like this virus thing is like, it's not subsiding and it actually seems like it's growing. Um, you know, California just went into a, uh, parts of California just went into a lockdown. Uh, other parts of the states are going to lockdown. Like, I don't know how long these things last, but, you know, I just imagine that, you know, you're not going to get a large stimulus pass before uh, before Joe Biden's sworn in in January. So, like, I assume you're going to have either a very large stimulus or a stimulus like, you know, uh, number three. That And, and I think that will be a, a much uh, needed thing. And I think and, and I think that stimulus will also have to sort of take into consideration, like, uh, the creation, uh, the distribution and transportation, the marketing, and all those things that go into the vaccine and making sure that, you know, uh, not only here in the U.S., but globally that, you know, enough people are taking the vaccine that, you know, we can sort of curb this thing in a, in a way that is meaningful, that allow us to, to, to have confidence and and in living our lives the way we used to live, live pre uh, COVID-19. Um, and then I think, you know, there'll be a couple of opportunities. You know, I think it'll either be uh, some sort of, um, you know, call it an anti-lynching bill or police reform. And then I think you'd probably try to get a, a, a voting rights, John Lewis, uh, uh, the 21st Century Voting Rights Act passed I think one of the, one or two of those things will probably be big priorities. Um, and then I think it's really a coin toss, right? I think, um, you know, I think Biden's been, you know, very uh, uh, communicative on climate change and how we look at uh, our role, the U.S.'s role in climate change. You know, I think that, uh, I think climate change is real. I think the U.S. needs to lead but I also think it's like a hard, it's a hard topic to get people fired up about because ultimately, you know, um, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a consumption tax in order to have clean energy. And I don't, you know, and people are, people love to like, uh, people love to use debt and leverage and expect other people to pay for these things in the future if they can afford having to pay for it today. 
even though I think fundamentally it's the right thing to do, I, I, I struggle that it's something that we'll be able to get done knowing that, uh, you know, that 2022, you could have a chance to win back the Senate um, and then try to do something meaningful with less uh, pushback. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, I think he's said he'll, you know, he'll roll back the, the Trump tax cuts um, and, um, and then I think he'll also do some stuff on capital, uh, I'm sorry, on the estate tax, you know, and I think that'll, I think that'll be painful for some people. It won't be painful for me. I don't know about you guys, but like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with pay. you. Not, I'm not feeling that pain. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we good. Yeah. Yeah. Reggie, I wanted to ask you something um, because you, you touched upon it earlier uh, with respect to that. We're, we all really want the same things in essence, whether, you know, left, right, red, or blue. Um, you talk about it in the book um, that, you know, the relationship between you and Obama, even though he was, uh, obviously older than you. Um, that's where you kind of learn that, like, from the campaign that, you know, meeting all these people of races and ethnicities that we really want the same thing. I'm curious, you feel that same way after the last four years, after the, the, the last four to five years, and, and now that you've been removed from politics for a while, you haven't really been on the campaign trail, you haven't really been, you know, in that Oval Office setting, and, and seeing what's happened in America now, do you still feel that same way? Look, I think that's a good question, right? Um, like, uh, I'd say that tribalism is more alive and real now uh, than it's probably been in, in, in many, many years. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, I think a lot of the things that we see today are just, I think they are, they're, they are symptoms of the fact that we have not caused, we have not solved for a lot of the root causes. And I think those root, those pain root causes are the same still, you know? Um, I think people want, they wanna have opportunity. They wanna have uh, the ability to, uh, to, to work and earn a living wage and also be able to take a vacation and have a weekend and have health care and retire with dignity. Um, I'd say that, and I think people want to have hope. You know, I think people want to, they want to believe that uh, anything's possible for them. And, you know, and I think when you look back at uh, the last like, couple of months with, um, all of this visual violence uh, that has been uh, going against uh, Black Americans um, by law enforcement, by law officers, uh, not all of them, but some of them uh, across the country, right? Like, uh, you know, I can't imagine how people can believe in a system where a white man can shoot a Black man in Georgia and walk around the street for 30 days and, ne and never even set foot inside a police station. Like, I don't know how people can believe in a system like that, where they think that if I do, if I play by the rules and if I do the right things, then, you know, ultimately I'll, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll be okay. And you know what, I'll, I may make it to the next 
to the next level, right? Like that in itself, like shakes people to their core. And, 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 and that's like in the, the, the black community, right? I mean, I often think that people, I think people are mistaken that, you know, um, issues that are specific to um, urban uh, populated areas that have, you know, that are over, that are, that are majorly represented by African-Americans or people of color, like those, those things that they face, those issues around um, access to education and access to jobs and healthcare. I mean, those are the same things that people in, Youngstown, Ohio are dealing with uh, mental health, abuse, addiction, uh, economic depression. I mean, it's, it's the same, it's, they're the same symptoms. I mean, the same root causes, they just, when, when people get uh, sick and tired of them, you know, the, the, the symptoms bubble up and they bubble up in different ways. Um, and, and what people then believe in uh to solve those problems is really a function of, you know, the communities and what those communities believe and what they, what, and what they're being told by leadership and who's to blame for these things. Right. Like, you know, um, I, I would always, I would always laugh about this because, uh, you know, when people would have the xenophobia about uh, immigration, you know, folks coming from Mexico to, uh, and they're taking all the jobs. And, you know, and I would say that, like, look, I think, um, yeah, I think that those jobs are being done. Um, and sometimes those folks are illegal, sometimes they're not illegal. But what it does do is it keeps working wages low. It keeps the price of goods low and we all love our cheap goods, you know, cause we go to the store, we want our basket to be full. And, and half the time those jobs don't pay enough for folks to even be incentivized enough to want to do them. Right. And like, and so sh- should, should, should you be able to, um, uh, work on a farm, uh, two thirds of the year and be able to earn a living wage. I think, yeah, you should, but that does not come without a, a, a significant impact on how we consume our own goods and how, and, and how we pay for our, our services. And so, you know, however you want to, uh, however you want to flip it, like there, there will be, there will be pain someplace and the pain can be things are too expensive because you know what, we pay a lot to employ people to do these things, or we can say, uh, you know what, like our labor market is, a, is a little bit smaller or, uh, not, not that the labor market smaller. You can say that certain jobs because of wages end up not being as attractive for, some of our lower class Americans and maybe that shouldn't be the case. Maybe wages, maybe there should be a universal 
living wage, right? Um, but like, I would imagine that someone's gonna be pissed off, and and it just depends on how people are gonna be pissed off. They can be pissed off down, or they can be pissed off up. Uh, and I think uh, uh, history has shown us it's easier to get people to be pissed off downward onto a lower class than it is be, get them to be pissed off at the class above them. How many of your experiences you know, politically in the sports world and just a human being living in these you know, wild times, um, do you find yourself jaded, hopeful, a mix of both? Where do you, where do you sit with, with where you are today? I, I I mean look I'm I'm hopeful uh, I'm hopeful because uh, you know, I, I I two things I had parents who were uh, who who prayed for me but they also taught me and they also made me like learn the history and and, and not only learn the history because they wanted to be be smart learn the history because they wanted me to have perspective and like if you truly know the history of this country. Um, black or white, uh, there's no way you can not be hopeful. You know, like the only thing you can say is be hopeful. And I know that uh, the narrative has been um, some in some places that uh, things in America have not changed. Uh, this is the same America that was in the 1960s. And I would say that some of those sentiments and some of the motivations of people are still the same, but you know, the country as a whole is not the same. Uh, the opportunity um, that uh, that is provided to so many more people that were um, underrepresented or minorities, that's like brown, black, yellow, woman, like there, it's just a, I mean, we're, we're light years ahead of where we were. Um, you know, when you look at other countries of our size, uh, population-wise and geographically speaking, you know, no one else has, no other place has done anything uh, close to the scope of what we've been able to do. And I think we just have to remember that these things don't happen overnight. Uh, very similar to a campaign, like, you know, sometimes these things last two years, three years. Uh, and, you know, I think Martin Luther King's quote is like, the, it's the best quote is that, the, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Uh, and, you know, and it doesn't bend by itself. You know, we have to work to continue to bend the arc. And, and if we don't, you know, if you're not willing to be hopeful, if you're not willing to work and fight to have a better community and, a, and, 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 and stronger principles and uh, and you don't want to hold your elected officials accountable and responsible, um, then yeah, then like you shouldn't be hopeful and like, but you also shouldn't complain because uh, you essentially have the the country that you are, are, are you, you you will be given the country that other people have fought for themselves and not what you fought for. Reggie, it's, this has been great. Uh, before we let you go, um, which one is harder? Uh, a Coach K practice or planning an event at the White House? Mm. Well, is it a, is it a, is it a midweek 
practice uh, after a game, or is it a preseason? No, Carolina's on deck. And, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the the Coach K practice could be pretty tough. Um, but uh, you, you, we we never had any um, we never had any any practice crashers like we did uh, at the at the White House uh, for the Indian State dinner, and that was brutal. Yeah, that was that's a good part that you touched on in the book. And um, actually, my wife, a big Real Housewives fan, <laughs> alerted me to that. I was like, I didn't remember that. But uh, either way, uh, Reggie, man, it's it's been a, a thrill having you on. Um, for those of you in my audience out there, go get the book, uh, Power Forward, uh, My Presidential Education. Re- Reggie really talks about um, learning from not only President uh, Barack Obama, but also Coach K and the lessons learned from his parents as well. Uh, two Former two-star, I'm going to say two-star athlete um, at Duke University. We really, ha- <laughs> we really appreciate you coming on today, Reg. Oh, well, I appreciate you, Mike and Nick, for having me, and, and good luck with the show, and I hope you guys have a great holiday season. All right, so that was uh, Reggie Love. Like I mentioned, uh, go get his book, uh, Power Forward, My Presidential Education. It's a great read. Um, and he really, like I mentioned, he talks about just learning from, you know, Coach K, uh, President Obama. There was so much we really wanted to get to uh, with him, but really appreciate him him jumping on. Uh, Nick, what what'd you think of Reggie overall? You know, I, think it, I think it really got summed up in the last question, you know, talking about... You know, where is, is he today and what and I love the quote he brings back about the the arc of history and I think it's something that you know you and I both have heard before um, I, I think just landing in a hopeful place you know just is it, exciting to hear his journey and bring us to today you know where he sits with his these varied life experiences just an amazing conversation and, uh, and I just sit in gratitude to be a part of that dialogue and the stuff we're doing as a show um, and just the insights he gave about you know being from you know, just at a, you know, practicing at Duke as a basketball player to, you know, working working alongside as, as President Obama's personal aide to being a student at Wharton at, at a tough business school to um, being an intern and just the economic challenges of that to being in the NFL. I mean, Mike, I thought we took this conversation in a variety of different places and at every point of it, uh, Reggie was just very up front and I thought at the end did a great job of connecting the dots as to what brings him here today and where this where these experiences leave him. Yeah, you know, it, such a well-rounded individual. You can you can hear it in his voice. Um, education was preached in his house. Um, but then just where sports took him, you know, uh, training camp with the Green Bay Packers, training camp with the Cowboys. Um, and then all of a sudden he's working on the campaign trail. And he even mentioned that he even worked for a previous senator um, that was running for election in Indiana. So super interesting to, to talk to him today. Go get that book. It's, it's really a good read. And it's a very quick read, too. Um, next week, we're going to have a, a very interesting show for everybody. We're going to get into the art of filmmaking and uh, Emmy award-winning director Jason Ayer who directed ESPN's The Last Dance, the story of the, the 97-98 Bulls. He's also done a bunch of other documentaries, Andre the Giant, which is on HBO Max um, and you, it's about the former professional wrestler's life 
And he did the ESPN 30 for 30, the Fab Five, about the, the five Michigan basketball freshmen that really revolutionized the game. So we're excited to talk to him next week. Just getting more of his background. Him and I worked together at HBO for years. And, and HBO was really a, a big ground for a lot of uh, documentarians. Uh, you know, him, Ezra Edelman, who, who did the OJ Made in America documentary. Um, Gabe Spitzer came out of there, who did the 30 for 30 on John Daly. So there's a lot to talk about with him, but we'll get into the art of, of film making and directing with him next week um that'll do it for us another installment of the can we please talk podcast as always i'm mike leon i am nick saveri thanks for joining us everybody uh, give us a subscribe or follow on the show leave us a comment uh in whatever app store or however you use your podcast thanks for listening folks apple spotify youtube That's get right. on it stitcher Join. google we're on all of them <laughs> we'll see you everybody next week the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.